I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to start with a disclaimer this morning. I want to flirt with heresy this morning. It may feel controversial, but I hope it will broaden our faith, even as it may soften our certainty. I'm not going to tell you where I stand, nor will I tell you where you should stand. But if we read our New Testament text honestly, the elephant in the room would seem to be the virgin birth. But let's avoid that elephant for a while. Maybe keep him out in the parking lot and maybe go and visit him a little later. Every year at Christmas when I read this New Testament text, our son's birth in 1971 comes to mind. I was the first dad allowed in the delivery room at the Abbotsford General Hospital. And in the early, in the early parts of a 22-hour labor, I held Lynn's hand and kept myself and her hyper-oxygenated as we attempted to maintain our distracting breathing exercises. The miracle, the messiness of birth, was overwhelming, rather easy for me to say. The side story is that in the times between Lynn's contractions, I kept hearing a child crying in the hallway. Lynn, always other-centered, encouraged me to go out in the hallway to see what it was. It was a 14-year-old girl in the hallway, alone, crying through her own labor pains. And for the next few hours, Lynn would call me when her contractions started and then send me back to this child when they abated. When her parents had discovered that she was pregnant, this girl had been sent in disgrace to B.C. from somewheres in rural Saskatchewan. No one in their community was to know. They would maintain appearances. She was moved to Abbotsford to live with her uncle and aunt during her pregnancy. They had dropped her off at the emergency room and left her alone to have this child. And the child was to be given up for adoption. And then she would move back home and no one would ever know. Her punishment and my anger were exacerbated by their abandonment. And I sat with, as I sat with her, she asked, How did this happen to me? And I was like, Really? What are you asking me? And when I tentatively explained procreation to her, she said, You mean this happened when that boy did that to me? Innocence and a preoccupation with purity codes are a dangerous combination. And I often, every Christmas, wonder what became of her. And I pray somewhere in her life she experienced some of the reality of Mary's song. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. But I kind of doubt it. What a mess. And I hate mess. Yet what a mess our New Testament passage depicts. And we are so tempted to sanitize it. Yet the smell of the sanitizer does not take away the mess. At best it helps us through it. At worst, 
It tempts us to avoid or deny it. (laughs) My mother always said that the best way to clean her messy house was to take her glasses off. To all appearances, this was a child born out of wedlock. And although Mary was betrothed to Joseph, and in the first century culture they would have been seen as husband and wife even before the wedding. In fact, if Joseph had died before the wedding, Mary would have been seen as a widow. They had a phrase in their culture, virgin widow. And to make matters worse, when Joseph finds out she's pregnant, he reacts by claiming he's not the father and plans to divorce her. And in his male-dominant culture, he had that unquestioned right. And so the story only gets messier. And without some supernatural support, Mary, Joseph, and their families would likely have been overwhelmed with the mess they found themselves in. It required angels, family support, the pregnancy of a barren Elizabeth, and the silence of her priest's husband, Zechariah, and an interruption in the marriage plans. Some might even say it required some creative writing by the authors of Matthew and Luke, seeking to make the birth of Christ more respectable and less messy. Why wouldn't God minimize this mess and bring the Messiah into the world in a less controversial fashion? Have Jesus born into nobility, to someone more mature, who was well-known, famous, established, devoid of controversy, etc.? Or perhaps just have the Messiah descend from the heavens in the same way that he left. But there's a dilemma here. Incarnation requires messy humanity. To be human is to be birthed. Richard Rohr this morning in his meditation said that Franciscans believe that incarnation was already redemption because in Jesus' birth God was saying, it's good to be human. And God was on our side. So perhaps the message is that a better person than a pregnant, young, engaged Mary doesn't exist. Does virginity somehow make her a better person? (laughs) And that brings us to the elephant in the parking lot. Let's go out and visit him briefly. And let's imagine a group of people four groups of people standing around the elephant and debating from their purview. And now obviously these are representative debates and even though there are many blends and variations of each of these points of view. So first of all, let's look at one group. Mrs. Orthodox and her distant cousin, Mr. Evangelical, and his distant cousin, Mr. Fundy. Mrs. Orthodox says, actually what we're talking about here is not so much virgin birth, but virgin conception. The birth seems very natural and totally human. And if we read this passage, and still more if we read Matthew 1, 18 to 25, it means what it says, that Jesus was born to Mary without a human father. And so it is natural to believe that if Jesus is this special person called the Son of God, he would have to have a special entry into the world. This is part of our creeds, the 39 articles, our statements of faith. In fact, there's a prophecy in Isaiah. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, 
and will be called Emmanuel. Mr. Evangelical then quotes C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, after suggesting that in all conceptions the human father is simply an instrument, put it this way, once and for a special purpose, God dispensed with that long line which is his instrument. Once his life-giving finger touched a woman without passing through the ages of interlocked events. Once the great glove of nature was taken off his hand, his naked hand touched her. And Mr. Fundy echoes, besides, the Bible says so. And Mrs. Orthodox goes on. That something significant was happening is supported by all the affirmations of angels, shepherds, wise men, and even more so by the life Jesus lived, the miracles he performed, and the reality of the resurrection. For nothing is impossible with God. So now let's listen to the second group, Mr. and Mrs. More Liberal. There are some things that make us wonder if the story of the virgin birth is to be taken literally. The genealogy of both Jesus in both Matthew and Luke traces the paternity of Jesus through Joseph, which is strange if Joseph was not his real father. Further, when Mary was looking for Jesus on the occasion of his staying back in the temple, Mary says, your father and I have been looking for you. We were worried. And repeatedly, Jesus is referred to as Joseph's son. In the New Testament, only Matthew and Luke use the term virgin when speaking of Mary. The rest of the New Testament knows nothing of the virgin birth. So we don't necessarily have to take it literally. Besides, the writers of Matthew and Luke had the dilemma of trying to make their message palatable to a Jewish population that was preoccupied with purity laws. And so they softened the story. Regarding the Isaiah passage quoted in Matthew and Luke, the word virgin is only found in the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the original Hebrew text. In the older Hebrew text, the word is actually young woman. The Jews also had a saying, that in the birth of every child there are three partners, the Father, the Mother, and the Spirit of God. No child is born without the presence of the Spirit. So even if Jesus had a human father, it is not Mary's virginity that is the real necessity of belief, but the unique work of the Holy Spirit. Besides, why this preoccupation with purity? Jesus' whole ministry was focused on breaking down the yoke of the purity laws that the religious leaders of the Jews focused on. So we shouldn't focus on them either. Let's just accept the possibility that the Spirit was operative in his birth in a very unique and special way. For nothing is impossible for God. And now we move to the third group, Mr. Factitious and Mrs. Doubted. Now, we think this is an elaborate plan to hide an illegitimate pregnancy in the first century. And boy, did it work. Mary was very convinced and even became convinced. Or Mary was very convincing and became convinced. Joseph became convinced. Their whole extended family became convinced. 
They sustained the plan all their lives and promoted it. Their children were convinced. Even the cousins, John the Baptist and Jesus, lived their lives based on this elaborate plan. And while there may be some good things that came out of this plan, its foundations are based on falsehood. And since then, literally millions of people have been convinced. And for us, the facts take us in a different direction. It was a cover-up. In the second century, shortly after these Gospels were written, the Greek writer Celsus wrote a book about how Jesus was the illegitimate low-birth offspring of a storyteller named Mary and a Roman soldier called Panthera. And the suggestion is that she was raped. Also, various later rabbinical texts refer to him as Jesus ben Panthera, all of which was intended as an insult. Jesus was an illegitimate child. Now, obviously, the Son of God couldn't be born out of wedlock, so while Jesus was an interesting person, an admirable leader, and someone to admire, he was not the Son of God, uh, if that God exists. And then our fourth group the venerable Mr. Contrarian and his crowd. None of this, he says, is based on significant reality. There is no evidence outside of these few words written by these marginalized, uneducated serfs seeking to find solace in a world that was stacked against them. This falsity made their lives palatable, and it leaves us with the image of a God who forced himself on Mary. Talk about marginalizing women. Furthermore, originally John the Baptist and Jesus were seen by the disciples, zealots, and the populace as a way out of Roman domination. And when they realized that it wasn't going to happen, they found another way to transcend their difficult lives and begin to imagine an afterlife kingdom, an inner kingdom, and an otherworldly existence. They constructed this story and many others from part truths to come to grips with their longing for a Messiah. The only miraculous thing is how fast this new belief system spread until eventually it became so large that Constantine saw the opportunity of co-opting it for his political agenda, a way to unify the masses under the religious and political marriage we now call Christendom. And so the arguments continue. This elephant has gotten a lot of tension, attention over the centuries. Thousands of pages have been written about these thoughts. People have lost their lives, been imprisoned and tortured because they were judged for their beliefs. And so the elephant remains. Or does it? Maybe we each just want to keep it in the cage of our own making. William Barclay, a minister in the Church of Scotland, called himself, interestingly, a liberal evangelical. Of the virgin birth, he says, the Church does not insist that we believe in this doctrine. And so he encourages each believer to make their own decision, but to not make that decision the basis of judging others. I've told the story before about Barbara Brown Taylor as a young academic 19-year-old who had attended the Episcopal Church all her life. And as a 19-year-old, she's sitting reading the creed, 
and comes to the line, and we believe in the virgin birth, and found herself laughing, and then saying, have I lost my faith? And she says she looked across the hall at her friend Mary, and she knew that for Mary the virgin birth was critical. If that fell, the whole stack of cards fell. And so she made the community relational decision to say, I'm going to let Mary believe in the virgin birth for me right now. And I know that Mary struggles with our theme of preferential treatment for the poor, social justice. And that is something that I have been called to believe. And so I will believe that for Mary right now. If this way of holding these things has some relational validity, then perhaps we too can see the backstory or the story that transcends our preoccupation with who's right and who's wrong about this doctrine. And I want to suggest that this text is asking us to live in the tension between Mary's two questions. How can this be? And let it be with me according to your word. The Magnificat, that beautiful prayer of Mary, does exactly that. It lives in that tension. When she asks the question, how can it be? She is blessed by an angelic presence and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And in the midst of the mess, she worshipfully says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit Rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. And experiencing her belovedness, she exclaims, Let it be done to me according to your word. She discovers something new about God. This prayer isn't a description of what a wonderful person Mary is. This prayer is about who God is. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. The poor and the marginalized do not have the luxury of entertaining a sanitized, controlled, and seeming predictable life. They know that life is a mess. And that's where the Spirit tends to hang out, just as Jesus the Christ did in his time on earth. Jesus' birth to Mary and Joseph is messy personally, emotionally, theologically, and the messiness continues today, leaving us often with more questions than definitive answers. And yet, if we are honest, isn't that how much of life is? Messy? especially right now. The Christmas story is not just a cute little baby in a manger with smiling, flawless parents, supported by extended family, pristine animals that sweetly gaze at the Christ child, shepherds that quake, or astronomers that bring gifts. We tend to sanitize and romanticize our history, especially when we try to bring God into it. But the divine shocks us by continuing to show up in the mess. This is good news. In a documentary about Good Morning America, news anchor Robin Roberts 
after going through a second bout with cancer, said, Make your mess the message. Live the mess out loud, allowing it to expose what is real. Learn from it and nourish others through it. It is often the offspring of the mess that produces new life in me and in others. There are many parallels to this story in our lives. Today, a parallel might be that COVID has confronted us with a mess in our lives. And the easy way is to get caught up in all the controversy, arguments, or even conspiracy theories, to become preoccupied with all the competing agendas. Instead, let's seek to notice where the Spirit of God is working in this mess, for it is a mess. But what new things might be conceived here? What might we be asked to let go of in our concepts of right and wrong, or in our beliefs about normality, or in our preoccupation with consumerism, etc.? Let us keep waiting patiently and serving one another in love. We may not be together in person, but the Spirit of God is here, right in this mess. Watch and wait. If you watch carefully in the midst of the mess, you'll see it out of the corner of your eye if you only look for it. Amen.